This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome back to Construction Law Today. Today, our guest is Jimmy Germano, Manager and Counsel for the AIA Contract Documents Committee. Jimmy is an active member of the ABA Forum on Construction Law. He and I served together on Division 7, the Insurance, Surety, and Liens Division. Jimmy was previously a guest on the podcast, so that is for episode 19. And in that episode, Jimmy gave an overview of some of AIA's document families, some history of how the AIA documents came into existence, and the structure and process for creating the AIA documents. Jimmy is a great guest and a knowledgeable resource whose job is to address some of the most important issues on the construction documents that we as construction law practitioners see quite often in our daily law practice. Jimmy, thanks again for joining us and welcome back to the podcast. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I was thinking it's the start of March Madness right now. We're taping this in early March of 2022. Uh, and, you know, if episode 19 were put in the in the bracketology of the ABA podcast, I'm kind of wondering where it would fall. I think you know, probably, you're probably far. Yeah, I, I think maybe like a, you know, Sweet 16 kind of thing, I hope. Maybe Elite Eight. Somewhere in there, yeah. Maybe Final Four. I don't know. <laughs> it was very good. Uh, so, Jimmy, in this episode, we plan to discuss a few of the latest construction industry trends and, and how the AIA is addressing uh, them in the, in the context of their contract document series, uh, including COVID-19, uh, the proliferation of design build, uh, the increasingly complex insurance requirements on projects, and developments in construction technology, including BIM. And so let's talk about the big picture for a second. Does the AIA have any drafting principles that it uses that affect new contract language? Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, so like anytime we're going to look at a trend, um, we we kind of start out by looking at it through the lens of our, you know, the basic principles that we follow. So those drafting principles are, they're relatively straightforward and anyone in the construction industry to kind of like start nodding along. And it's the, the first thing you do in a construction contract is you apportion risk to the party that is best able to manage it. Now, it doesn't make sense to place risk on a party to a construction project if that party can't manage that risk. Uh, that would be unfair. So some, you know, some people talk about this as risk shifting. I don't really see it as risk 
shifting. I kind of think of it more as like risk apportioning, because if you're shifting risk, that kind of assumes that you've already placed it on a party and then they get to like offload it and shift it to somebody else. And that's not necessarily, and we're all starting at a you know, starting point of the project, no risk has been assigned yet. That's what the contract does. Uh, so when we assign risk, the first thing we do is we assign it or apportion it to the party that's best able to manage it. The way that we look at that is through, you know, sort of project decisions that they can make and then also through insurance. Uh, so if there's no clear party that can manage a risk through their project actions or their decisions, then that risk is placed upon the party who can insure against that risk. And then lastly, if there's still no clear party, then the risk is traditionally placed upon the owner because the owner is the party who ultimately benefits from receiving project ownership at the end of the day. Can you give us one example of this risk shifting idea in practice? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I was trying to think of like an example of this, and I think a great example would be something like differing site conditions. Most construction litigators have dealt with a DSC claim, you know, probably relatively early on in their career. They're relatively common. So you get into the nuance of a type one versus a type two DSC and how it works and all that. Well, if you take a step back for a second, and I'm going to go 30,000 feet for a second, because it's at you know, the AI, it's kind of how we look at things. In the sort of the first third of the 20th century, the 1930s, getting into the 40s, project owners, the, the idea of design, bid, build was starting to proliferate. And you started to see more projects go with a what we consider now to be kind of a traditional or conventional design, bid, build. Well, owners were receiving bids that were wildly different on construction projects. And the, the reason was, or one of the reasons was, was because there were court decisions coming out saying, in some instances, if there was some unforeseen condition, there was something below ground, it was, you know, it was more compact than you expected, there were rocks down there or whatever, sometimes contractors were responsible for that and sometimes owners were responsible for that. So contractors didn't know going into a project if they'd be responsible for that risk. So they were building it into their bids and owners were receiving sort of artificially inflated bids because contractors nationwide were starting to like cake this into their bids. So I think it was like 1951 or 52, that version of the A201, they didn't always come out on the sevens. Uh, so it was, I think it was 51. That version of the A201 created a differing site conditions clause and placed the risk of a differing site condition on the owner and owners were totally okay with that because it meant they started to receive bids that were more uniform across the board from contractors because contractors no longer had to factor that into their bid because they knew that the owner was responsible for it. But then the balance there is contractors have to put in a timely notice if they encounter a DSC. So that's kind of the give and take there. That's a good way to think about it. Let me ask you this. I have you here from the AIA. You're talking about the power dynamic a bit between contractors and owners. Maybe there is a, an old saying almost in the construction industry with respect to AIA that some folks think the AIA documents are biased in favor of architects and owners. Is that true? When I was in private practice, I heard that from a few people and I never really understood it. I mean, I could understand why somebody might think that on its face because it is the American Institute of Architects uh, who published these, or at least like the, the branded AIA. 
But I think somebody with a full understanding of the history of the AI documents, the contract docs program, the process by which these documents are created and revised, I don't think would really think there's a slant one way or the other. So I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. In the run-up to any one of our releases, we talk to owners, we talk to contractors, we talk to architects, and we talk to many large nationwide, very well-known general contractors who told us point blank, if they were presented with an unedited A201 or an A133, if they're a CM, they would absolutely sign it. And we actually get inquiries all the time from architects asking why the documents don't protect architects. So I, yeah, I think if we're getting complaints from owners and contractors and architects that everybody you know thinks it's slanted the other way, I think then that's kind of how you know you're balanced, right? Yes. Um, so like an example is that I think of on this is like the initial decision maker, right? So I think the initial decision maker, if you're familiar with the A201, it's kind of the first step in resolving a dispute, right? You go to your initial decision maker, a contractor will say, and the IDM, the default right now is an architect. And when we created the initial decision maker, I want to say it was 2007 uh, when it was in there for the first time, the program kind of looked at every project participant on a design bid build project and said, who would be in the best position to serve as an initial decision maker? And the determination was it's probably the architect. So the default is the architect is the initial decision maker. And in trying to balance all of the interests, though, knowing that it may not be appropriate in every project, the A201 is editable. So you're able to select another party if you want to. So if you look at the initial decision maker clause and it says you know, the default is the architect, you might think, you know, kind of like what I was saying earlier, you might think on its face like that favors architects. But if you kind of look beyond that a little bit, I think it, you realize that it makes sense. And in our interviews, when we're updating these documents, we go out and we ask, you know, should we change this to another party? Does this make sense? And our industry research suggests that the architect is almost always selected to be the initial decision maker. Right. Um, so I think it's it's something like that that's kind of maybe on its face kind of looks that way, might seem that way. But then when you dig through and you, you kind of get into it, you realize it kind of makes sense. Yep. Let's switch gears and talk about some of these emerging trends in the construction sure. industry. So one I hear a lot about, obviously, are items related to COVID-19, those being force majeure clauses, supply chain issues, pricing issues. Can you tell our listeners about the impact COVID-19 is having on the AIA contract documents? Sure. Yeah. So COVID's obviously a hot topic. The easiest way to talk about this is to like to focus on one agreement. So let's stay in the A201. You know, I'm just going to assume most people that are listening to this podcast are familiar with the A201. Uh, so what we're doing with respect to COVID right now is we're going out to the industry and we are we're asking, you know, what worked and what didn't work in the A201, particularly right around that February, March. April 2020 timeframe. And what we have heard by and large is the A201, the structure worked. The delay provision is 8.3.1. We spent a lot of time 
looking at it, giving a lot of presentations on how 831, that's the delay provision. Yeah. Even though we don't use the words force majeure, and, a lot, and we had a lot of questions like in that mid to late March, early April 2020, with people saying the 8201, I, you know, I did control F and I don't see force majeure anywhere. Does this mean it's not addressed? So we, we had to kind of step back and we put out some educational programming that says it's there. You know, it's in 8.3.1. And actually, I gave a couple of those presentations and in doing that research, you know, myself and a lot of members on our team, we dug into decisions surrounding 8.3.1 and, and kind of delay clauses and force majeure clauses writ large. And we discovered that there seemed to be what we kind of look at as an inverse relationship between how specific a delay provision is and then how enforceable a related catch-all is. Uh, and we did a lot of research around that. So that's going to kind of, we'll look through that lens to determine if there's any changes that are necessary to something like 831. Sure. And in terms of the force majeure-like provisions in the current AIA documents, what were the operative portions of that portion of the agreement that were important for purposes of COVID-19? Yeah, sure. So um, in something like uh, the A201, 8.3.1 is your delay clause. There's probably, you know, there's like a dozen clauses in the A201 that can come into play for something like COVID, um, you know, something that you might not think of like hazardous materials, right? Like, like something like that might come into play. The architect standard of care, we talked about that a lot when you're talking about site visits, but that sort of thing. But the A201 has language in 8.3.1 that says something like, you know, the contractor shall be entitled to a delay if there are, quote, like causes beyond the contractor's control or something like that. It's, it's language that's similar to that. If that justifies a delay, then the contractor can, you know, submit a claim and try and get time for that delay. And from what we've seen, both before and after COVID, that clause is generally enforceable. What you won't find is the word pandemic. You won't find like a laundry list of things. And I know like certainly when I was practicing and, and even after that, like you see these delay provisions, those force majeure clauses that list like 85 things that could possibly count as a delay uh, in your contract. And what we discovered is that most good force majeure provisions, and I'm going to get a little legal and a little granular here, so you'll have to excuse me, but most good force majeure clauses and delay clauses have a catch-all at the end even if they have a laundry list. But there seems to be an inverse relationship. So if you list more things, if your laundry list gets longer, your catch-all becomes less enforceable, generally. I mean, every state's going to treat this differently, obviously. Check your state's local law. But that seems to be a trend that we found in some of the case law that we pulled. So that is something that we're going to say, all right, we're going to go out to the industry and say, did you have to litigate this issue, COVID under 831? What did the court say? You know, we're, we're looking at how the decisions are starting to come out on that. But that's sort of, you know, one issue that you might not think of. So when you think of like, you know, 8.3.1 doesn't include the word pandemic. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to, because just as an example, if it includes pandemic, but not epidemic, then is your catch-all, is a court going to say you included pandemic in this, but you didn't include epidemic? So the moment... That a, that a pandemic switches from being pandemic to epidemic, um, does that mean your catch-all is no longer enforceable? Because you thought about that one, not that one, et cetera. Right. So you, you kind of get into those tricky issues. 
What about with respect to COVID era pricing issues? All of us know that supply chain increased prices, those issues are severely impacting construction projects. How does the AIA documents, uh, how do they deal with those issues? Sure. Yeah. So right underneath 8.3.1, you know, some contracts have what's called a no damages for delay clause. A201 has something that's sort of the opposite of that. It basically says under 8.3.1, the contractor is going to be entitled to time. And then the contractor can submit a claim for damages for delay. And then then you kind of figure out the result of that claim. It's not automatic. Uh, And that's, again, kind of striking that balance and weighing the interests of all the project parties. But when we when we respond to this particular question, we kind of point to three or four different strategies that can work. So number one, we talk about things like COVID is no longer unforeseeable, right? Like everybody in the construction industry kind of knows you're here and then wacky things might happen. So you can look at different pricing structures. You don't have to go with a stip sum like an A101. You could go with an A102 or an A103 if you're doing design bid build, and those are your cost plus with and without a GMP respectively. And that is a way to, again, apportion the risk of price escalations to different parties when you start the project. And you can then start to really use things like contingencies and allowances on a project when you get into like really significant price shifting. And then also, the A101, the A201, they're all editable. So we've seen a lot of clauses being put in there that are state-specific, that are really project-specific. If you know you have a really long lead item that's being manufactured in a certain country and it kind of looks like it might not come in on time, that's something that we obviously can't write into a standard form, but all of our documents are editable and that can be put in there. So those are kind of some of the strategies that we usually recommend people take a look at. Thanks, Jimmy. We'll be back with more Construction Law today in just a moment. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at fticonsulting.com. We're back on Construction Law Today with Jimmy Germano of the AIA Contract Documents Committee. Jimmy, we were talking about COVID-19 and its impact on the AIA construction contract documents when we broke. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about design build. So that's another trend that now seems to be increasing in the construction industry, the design build delivery model. Is the AIA factoring that increasing demand into their plans? Yeah, for sure. So design build is something that is near and dear to my heart. I'm currently taking a look at those documents. And I talked a little bit in the last episode about how the AI keeps track of like different trends over the course of the 10 years of a document's life cycle. So one of the things we're hearing increasingly 
in that trend is increased use of design build and increased use of something that's referred to as progressive design build. Um, so we're taking a look at that and kind of seeing, all right, what impact might that have? And, and for those of you who neither know or, or don't know that design build documents come out on the years ending in four. So in 2024, we'll have a new set of design build documents that might incorporate some of that stuff. What's the difference between progressive design build and design build? Good question. So it, it a little bit depends on who you ask, but in general terms, it's sort of a sliding scale. So the more traditional design build you get on that scale, the more certain your sort of bid documents are that are going to be used to select a design builder. You have a design that's more fully cooked and developed. On the other end of the spectrum is like pure progressive design build where the selection criteria is purely qualitative. Uh, so a design builder is selected based upon things other than price for this project. And then they come in very early and the owner might just have like a concept in their mind of what they want to build. They hire a design builder very early and then that design builder gets their hands early and then they can, quote, progress the construction along with the progression of the design documents. Uh, so then, you know, they they might be working for weeks, months, years before a traditional design builder would be brought on board. So how are the AIA documents dealing with the idea of progressive design building? Good question. So the first question we have to ask and answer is, do our current documents, so it would be like the A141, do they allow for this? You know, can you have both sets of, like anywhere along that spectrum, can you use our design build documents to get to that finished product, whether you're going progressive design build or traditional design build or somewhere in the middle. And so we have to answer that question first. And we are setting up interviews with liaisons here in the very near future to go over that. And then based on the answers we get to say, all right, if the industry is trending one way, our documents might be able to get you there. They might not. And we'll, we'll kind of pivot from there, depending upon what we learn. What about delegated design or design assist? I've been involved in some disputes about that type of contract language. And we're talking about the types of arrangements where contractors, constructor parties are involved in being responsible ultimately for the design of certain portions of a project. Do the AIA documents deal with either of those types of delivery systems? Yeah, sure. So, so delegated design and design assist are heavy on our radar and they have been for a little while because of exactly like you just mentioned, a lot of lawyers out there are dealing with this. So I guess the starting point would be the A201 does allow for delegated design. It's in, I think it's in Article 3 of the contractor's responsibilities, basically saying that they're not providing what would be considered professional services. That's the design team, but that they can provide professional services on something like a performance specification. But then you get into you know, what, what constitutes delegated design and what constitutes design assist. So what we created were we have two new forms that are out, and that's the C403 and C404. And that's your sort of the, the agreement you would use if you want to have design assist or delegated design services. So that's sort of recognizing that that's where the industry had a need. And then we created these two new agreements that can be used. It, they're technically 
labeled like client and consultant, I think. Usually it's going to be like the contractor and a subcontractor, maybe even the owner and the contractor that are going to have sort of your delegated design, your design assist. But the first thing you do need is need to understand what those terms are. And there's a lot of disagreement, I think, about what the difference is. That's an important area. So it's good to hear that AIA is addressing those issues. Let's turn our attention to insurance. I practice quite a bit in the construction insurance space, and I am well aware of the 2017 AIA insurance exhibit. Uh, So with respect to that insurance exhibit and other developing AIA documents, how is the AIA addressing what are increasingly complex insurance requirements, especially on larger construction projects? Sure. Yeah. So um, you mentioned the 2017. So the, the 2017 conventional family or design bid build, so like A101, A201, they have for the first time, they carved out an insurance exhibit. You know, I think by now everyone is kind of familiar with that, but you know, back before 2017, all of the insurance terms were included in the A101 and the A201, kind of all, all in. And I'll give you a little bit of a look behind the curtain here. So the way the AI documents are structured is there's sort of, you know, there's releases every 10 years of various documents, and there's three that are kind of bigger than the rest of them, so to speak, in terms of like industry utilization and familiarity. And obviously the seven, the one year that ends in seven, that's your conventional, your A201 design build is pretty big. So that's the year that ends in four. Then your CM is the year that ends in nines. So one kind of trend that we're looking at is we might float something out to the industry in the year that ends in four to see, you know, maybe we've gotten some feedback. We want to try something out. Let's see how the industry reacts to this. Is this something that we really think, you know, could work and the industry likes it? If so, then that gets, you know, perhaps embedded into the seven. And then if there's really confirmation that the industry appreciated that and wants it to stay, then it kind of gets fully set in the nines. So the insurance document you referenced that carve out of the insurance exhibit that started in 2014. It actually started in 2004, but it was like a one page blank document that just said like insurance stuff here. So that kind of was a little bit more specific in 2014, the design build documents. And then in 2017, the insurance exhibit that most people used to kind of really was flushed out with sort of a very interesting backstory as to how that kind of came about and then who was involved in that. But that's not what you were asking about. No, so (laughs) an issue in the insurance context I see more and more is project-specific insurance. So OSIPs, CSIPs, project-specific professional liability insurance. Is the AIA seeing that developing trend and trying to address it? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So the project-specific insurance is a very... It's an interesting insurance model and framework, but a couple of things to understand about it is it can be really expensive and it's not available on every project. But there might be a situation where you mentioned an architect's professional liability insurance, if you want to have a project-specific policy for that. We looked at that in, for example, the B109, which is the owner-architect agreement for multifamily and mixed-use and then it can be converted into a condo agreement using our the guide. So a little tip, if you see anything in our documents that starts with the number five, it's usually a guide. So the B509 is the guide that kind of converts the B109 into a condo agreement. And that document goes into a lot of detail about project-specific insurance and how it's expensive, might not be 
available, but it might be appropriate for your project. So kind of talk to your broker about that. So if you are interested, if anyone listening is interested in project specific, I think the B509 is a really good place to start. But sort of an example of us allowing some flexibility in the documents to be able to account for something like that. Do you see any other trends in insurance that are impacting what the AIA is doing in terms of its contract documents? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing we're going to have to look at here in the next couple of years is something like cyber. And, you know, cyber is available. It's, it's, it's in there already. But is there additional language that we have to put in there for something like cyber? If you're looking at like, you know, there's different kinds of cyber insurance. So what's the coverage? Is it something that's like just a pure you know, if you got hacked and now the data is out there, or is it like ransomware or something like that? So does that, does the language we have fully account for that? Does there need to be a change to that? So like that would be an example of maybe over the next year, two, three, you might start to see language that maybe tweaks that a little bit to recognize where the industry is going. Let me uh, switch gears from insurance to ask you about BIM. I know that's something that you and I have talked about and talked about the way that emerging technologies are impacting the construction industry. Does the AIA take into account the idea that BIM is in is becoming a more important part of construction projects and the capabilities that BIM has are growing over time? Yeah, absolutely. So our BIM, the exhibits that we have, we have BIM exhibits. They can be attached to any basically any agreement we offer or any agreement, period. They were last updated in 2013. So we've taken a look at those and we're going to release new ones soon. And those trends that you were talking about, increased utilization, just the the scale and the volume, you can imagine like back in 2013, what people were doing with BIM versus what they're doing now, it's exploded. So we were accounting for that and we're I can't get into too many specifics because those documents technically aren't published yet. They're, they're going to be out there very soon. I can go over a couple of highlights if you want. I don't know if we have time for that or not. Let me ask you this. I imagine there's an interesting divide between the practitioners in the field, right? The people who actually work with BIM on the one hand, and then us lawyers, the construction law practitioners on the other hand. Does that divide influence how the AIA is looking at the use of BIM in contract documents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that that's actually like exactly the lens that we looked at first in updating these documents. So we, we kind of recognize there's this knowledge divide and you go out to a BIM practitioner, you know, your design team, your construction team, someone who's putting the model together and they might say something like, well, our, you know, we have our construction documents that are due next Friday, but we're done. So let's just upload them to the shared server today and that'll count. Well, if your deadline for CDs is next week, but you upload something this week, then can the contractor rely on that? Should the contractor rely on that? Must the contractor rely on that? It's that kind of nuance that a sort of a bimmer is going to recognize like this is a kind of nuance that's happening in the field, whereas an attorney, two years ago, negotiating the BIM exhibit is just going to kind of look at the cost, maybe the scope of the project. And, and you can't really get more granular than that unless you really understand the nuances. So what we tried to do was create a set of exhibits that really bridged that gap. So the lawyers can understand what the, the doers, the BIMers are doing and vice versa. I think it's under, important for the BIMers to understand all of the risks of you know, something like I just mentioned. Or 
the kind of the third rail of, of legal BIM is BIM as a contract document, you know, that topic, uh, you know, how is that handled and can those two sides talk to each other? Let me ask you about one more emerging trend issue, which is modular construction and prefabricated construction. I think a lot of us construction law practitioners are dealing with those issues in practice. Are the AIA documents addressing modular construction or prefabricated construction? Yeah, good question. If I recall correctly, this podcast has a really good episode about modular construction that everyone should check out. It's really insightful. And one of the issues, like just for example, one of the issues that was raised, I think, in that episode with that attorney was something like, you know, does the UCC apply to a prefabricated you know, unit. If you have a you know 50 story high rise and all these units are just going to be delivered and you have a big Lego set and, and put it together, is it a sale? Is that a sale of goods or is it a service? Is it both? And then which states building codes apply? Is it the state where it was put together, the state where it was originally designed and, and quote unquote constructed? So we're taking a look at all of that the, to answer your question. Uh, yes, we, we are taking a look at that and we're kind of deciding how to account for that. Is it something like a new agreement? Is it something like additional language and some of the revisions we're making and taking all that into account? But I would definitely stay tuned because I think some of that probably going to come out in the next uh, little while. So we'll kind of see where the industry tells us it wants to go. Uh, basically, is kind of how we look at it. Our guest has been Jimmy Germano of the AA Contract Documents Committee. Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us. And we hope to have you on the podcast again sometime. Thanks, Dave. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. It was great. Our pleasure. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening, and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.